This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. Uh, Chicago's Best Ideas, locally called CBI series, um, invented free lunch at the University of Chicago. Like, you know how now, every day, you can like, make believe you care about the environment or an organization and go get a free lunch by going to a speaker? Well, once upon a time, we didn't have free, free lunch, hadn't been invented yet. And we had this idea, in honor of the law school centennial, of, well, why didn't we have a talk, you know, six talks a year, maybe, and call them Chicago's Best Ideas, and that way students could meet like great ideas that had come out of Chicago. So, you know, the first 20 were about the Coase Theorem, the next 30 were about something else. And, you know, it then evolved into, well, why don't we always have free lunch for ideas, which I think our law school has become well known for. It increased tuition from ten dollars to $80,000. <laughs> um, but all our surveys suggest that it's money well spent. And also, uh, it went through a little bit of an evolution, which is that uh, faculty members started talking about their works of progress. Uh, and I'm trying to fight that. I, I've done that myself many times, but I'm trying to fight that today by going back to an old uh, Chicago Best Ideas and what was so great about this idea and what's become of it is kind of the theme I'm trying to establish. I don't know that anybody else will follow it, but uh, that's the idea. So let's see, that's the origin of Chicago's uh, best ideas and lunch. And the original idea was that then these lunches were supposed to be nicer than any other lunches we had. Now, I don't know, it's kind of hard to compete with that, and you should just feel free to eat and make as much noise as you want. Open and close, soda cans, I don't care. I kind of like noise. Uh, and, and it's lunch, like you're going to do whatever you want. Take out your cell phone. You get on the internet. Oh, we don't have that. I'm sorry. <laughs> you just do, do whatever you want. And uh, I'll speak for, uh, you know, some amount of time, I don't know, not that long, maybe half an hour or something. And that will leave us uh, at least, we should spend at least half our time on uh, questions or discussion or uh, whatever. whatever. Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't introduce uh, a newcomer, our new Associate Director of Student Services, Joe Edwards, who's right here in the first row. And you haven't met him because it's his first day here, if you can believe it. So let's give him a real Chicago one. There's a long loss of the tradition that when it's your first day, you come up and lead us in a song. <laughs> oh, he didn't fall for that one. I, and I don't know, you never know. I think we could have all, we could have helped a little bit. Like, yeah, oh, okay. Uh, but there you go. Okay, so uh, here we go. Uh, my title today, uh, as you know from the vandalized brochure uh, that went around is, uh, is carrots and sticks. And let's agree on what it means, and then let's try to talk about it and try to bring it to subjects in the modern era as well. So the basic idea, I think, is very simple. Like, uh, you have something you want to accomplish in life. Uh, you'd, like some, you'd like people to come to class on time, let's say. Uh, so you can use carrots. You can say to them, wow, thank you so much for coming on time. You know, that would be like verbal carrots. Or if you're a teacher and there's some annoying you know, person who never comes on time, you could try to really sweeten it up. Uh, carrots are thought to be sweet. Some carrots are sweet, some not. But I guess carrots are meant to be sweet here, like bringing, you know, giving a horse a carrot. And so, for example, a couple of years ago, I had a student who uh, was late a couple times. 
And the old me had been a real curmudgeonly stick kind of person, like humiliate the person, you know, threaten to lower their grade from a 189 to a 187 or something like that. And instead, I thought, oh, we could learn something. And I said, you know what? If you can be on time every day from now until the end of the quarter, I'll give you $20. Of course, her reaction was, oh, I wasn't late. She was late. Yeah. And it was very interesting, because much to my surprise, she was always on time, every class for the rest of the year, and in fact, annoyingly so. She's still a law student, she might be sitting here, I don't want to identify her, so I don't want to say anything, but annoyingly so. You know, every class is ought to be about to start, she would go. <laughs> I was a little bit aggravated, but I, but, I, but I liked her, I loved her, in fact, she's a next door neighbor of mine, so it was sort of friendly. And then at the end of the year, I gave her the $20 in front of everybody. She was a little embarrassed. Oh, no, no, I couldn't possibly accept the $20. And then, of course, she took the <laughs> And it really drove home to me. I mean, there's a very interesting lesson there. Like, well, why is that $20 effective? Would it really be effective? What if I paid everybody? That's what I mean by carrots, and I want to talk about that at some length, about how law decides, both law and private parties, how they decide when to use positive incentives when you could just as well use negative Okay, that's the essential topic. Now I think uh, this topic might seem easy to you, but let's first locate it in the world of Chicago's uh, best idea. It is maybe the most important, if not immediate, outro of the so-called codes theorem, uh, founded in this very building, although the building looked different at the time, and done by the famous model codes, which, as I think you all know already from first-year courses and third-year courses, uh, refers to the idea, this strange counterintuitive idea, that you know legal rules can be put out there, and then people can bargain around the legal rules. And if they do bargain around the legal rules easily, then the original rule might matter for some things that you and I care about, but not for the real behavior of the people, not for the allocation of resources, economists would say, or we in law school might say, not for the way in which people actually buy and sell goods, or actually prevent accidents, or things of the sort. I I'm not here to review the coast there and argue about it, but I think it will be immediately clear that this is an outgrowth of the coast there. Because this idea is something like as follows. So if the government comes up with a rule, let's say it's a stick penalty. You know, the government says, well, if you uh, don't wear a seatbelt, there's a $50 fine. And now we observe people not wearing seatbelts. And the government can raise the fine. Maybe people think not wearing a seatbelt is worth more than $50 to them. Or maybe they think the probability of getting caught is very low. So there are all sorts of reasons why we might raise the fine. And then, really, a Coast Theorem person comes along and says, you know, instead of raising the fine, you could pay the person to wear a seatbelt. Right? That's a carrot, essentially. Every stick has a corresponding carrot. And whatever you think their responsiveness is to monetary incentives, which you must think if you're finding them, you could turn it around by paying them. Now, it might not be the same number of dollars. Maybe they have a kind of endowment effect or something of the sort. Maybe they don't like losing money. Or maybe the opposite. They love even a small $20 payment. I mean, you might have to experiment. But some amount of positive reward for wearing a seatbelt should be the equivalent of some amount of negative penalty, or whatever you want to call it, for not wearing a seatbelt. So that, put one more way, the government, or the party herself, could bargain around the original. Now, this makes you think um, that penalties and rewards, carrots and sticks, are complete substitutes. And that is our starting point. 
I think every advanced student, every 2L and 3L who read the title of this talk and saw carrots and sticks understood, because they've met the Coach theorem for more than a year, they understood, oh, the talk is about how they're equivalent. One person's stick could be another person's carrot. And then, I, I don't know, what, what else is he going to talk about? Like, I knew that already. And so it must be that there are strange subtleties about this equivalence and when they're not equivalent and when we prefer one and when we prefer the other. And that's right. That's exactly what our, our, our subject is. So, for example, I mean, let's get a few things out of the way and then get to the hardest one. So now let's say someone says to you, well, why? well, yeah, that's a good question. When do we use positive and negative incentives? I think the common answer, which is really a pretty good answer, would be to say, well, we try to use the one that requires us to monitor and then give incentives to as few people as possible. Because there's enormous administrative costs if you have to handle billions of people. You know, so for example, uh, well, we can even do the class. If most people come to class on time and one person is late, you know, it's quite manageable to either pay her $20 or punish her to the equivalent of 20 or more or fewer dollars. But it would seem a little bit crazy if then everybody else knew about it to somehow have a rule where you have to, like, pay all 100 people to come on time. So you might be worried a little bit about the administrative costs there. But it's easy to see in a public law example. You know, imagine that somebody litters on the midway and the police officer drives by, it's really pretty easy to say, oh, there's a fine on you, $100 for littering. And then again, the person calculates what's my chance of being caught and all that. And that's a much more manageable system than announcing at the outset, instead of putting up a sign that says, littering, $100, you put up a sign that says, cleaning, you know, 32 cents. And then every time somebody drove by the midway, they would like stop at a toll booth and say, you know, I went the whole way, I threw nothing out of the car window, Here's the video camera, and oh, thank you, and here's 32 cents. That just seems like, of course they're equal in some way, but it just seems obvious that in that situation, the law would prefer the stick to the camera. Okay? I feel a little bit better if you nod your head like, yeah, 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 of course I knew that. Come on, get to something different. Okay, so people are nodding their heads. All right. uh, even that example, by the way, was not so obvious, and let's see why. And I think the next thing that should come to mind, oh, and now we have something for one else to do. Right away, you see a problem with this. And watch. Watch how well-trained they are. And the problem is... Look at that! This is a moral hazard. Did you see the moral hazard, or you just knew to yell it out? I just... Boom! Okay, that's deep. Um, I don't think both is possible there, but that's okay. Yeah, look, think of the interesting moral hazard. Let's do driving. So in England, actually, about 15 years ago, the government was trying to get people to wear seatbelts. And so it had this thing like we have. You know, if you're in a car, and especially if you're in a car with an underage person in the car, then everybody in the car has to wear a seatbelt. In the United States, we tried that. The driver has to wear a seatbelt. Oh, the passenger. You know, we tried these things. If you don't wear a seatbelt, then we catch you. You get a fine. By the way, in most American states, it was police need some other reason to stop you. You can think of it as a very early anti-stop and frisk rule. It's kind of interesting that that was politically acceptable. People didn't want to, I mean, everybody's going around without a seatbelt in the transition period. And so people just didn't want the police to have every excuse to stop you. Now, in most jurisdictions, if they see you like at a red light without a seatbelt, now, of course, much easier because of the shoulder belt in the early days, they were only like airplane waistbelt. So, uh, the police can come over and they can give you a fine. And, you know, it does not seem to change seatbelt rules. 
Seatbelt uh, is basically a function of age. Everybody your age wears a seatbelt because you've been brought up to wear seatbelts. It's very hard like to teach my parents' generation to wear a seatbelt. Turned out to be a very difficult thing to do. You know, people felt like their liberty was at stake. I don't know, maybe you know this from parents or other relatives. There are a lot of people who regard wearing a seatbelt as you know, an incredible intrusion on their body integrity and privacy. And they don't want to wear seatbelts, even though wearing a seatbelt as a cost-benefit matter is, you know, a pretty good thing. You should wear seatbelts. I mean, I think. It's, you know, it's worth like eight cents to wear a seatbelt on a given trip. And, you know, as long as it doesn't cost you, you know, you don't feel like a quarter humiliated, but it on, it's probably a good idea. We'll talk about other low-cost things. But you see the moral hazard, or do you see the moral hazard? I've been wasting time trying to get everybody to see what must have happened in England. In England, they decided, oh, let's do something better to try to get people to wear seatbelts if the stick isn't working. And they announced that they would randomly stop people on the street, you know, on the street meaning while driving, and give them, I kid you not, a $5 gift certificate to McDonald's. Like McDonald's was making a big thing in England then, and so McDonald's got together with the government and they did this. And then they would do it. Every once in a while they'd stop somebody, oh, you're not wearing a seatbelt, you owe $10. Oh, you are wearing a seatbelt? Here's a McDonald's $5. And then I uh, could see what's going to happen is that they had traffic jams. People would, they had nothing to do. They'd think, oh, let's go for a ride. And they would just ride around the block where they heard that people were giving out McDonald's things. And, you know, it was no good. Especially in an era of smartphones. You know, once you spread the news about where the certificates are being rained down on people, people will go there and do more driving. So it's a very interesting moral hazard because, in fact, with more driving, you'll get more car accidents, not fewer car accidents. And even if the car accidents are slightly less severe because you're wearing a seatbelt, still, you'd rather have 10 accidents with no seatbelts than 40 accidents with seatbelts. No comparison. And uh, that's what they found. So it's an interesting moral hazard. So you might say, oh, okay, I get it now. Whenever you use a carrot, there's a moral hazard. Right? People will do more of the activity in order to earn the prize. So... Sometimes the moral hazard could be not doing the activity. Like, everybody knows I'm going to give you $20. If you're late for class, I'll give you $20 if you come on time for the rest of the quarter. But you might think that the next time I taught the class, no one would show up the first day on time. And everybody would come like 10 minutes late, prancing in the way she did, sitting down, and, and then maybe, oh, okay, I'll give you $20 to come on time for the rest of the year. But I think people understand that, you know, even I'm not that stupid. The governments aren't that stupid. They're only going to give the $20 either randomly or if one or two people don't do that. So the government could try to control the moral hazard a little bit. <coughs> Nevertheless, the first thing to think about when someone says, oh, the way to encourage good behavior is to pay rather than to find the opposite, the first thing to think about is that you'll get a moral hazard. By the way, there's an opposite to a moral hazard. Everything in this talk has an opposite. That's the idea. And the opposite, in general, we call chilling effect in law. So, for example, if there's a very big penalty to doing something, the famous example, which doesn't really work empirically, the famous example is rescue law. You know, we could give you a prize if you pull a drowning person out of the lake. And the problem there is that you might surreptitiously push people in the lake in order to pull them out and earn a prize. Maybe. And the opposite is we could say if you don't pull people out of the lake, you go to jail or we fine you. And the problem with that is that you'll no longer walk around the lakefront. You know, you'll stay away from lakes, the claim famous Landis and Closer there'll be a chilling effect at the activity level. And people who otherwise would occasionally save people in life 
might stay away from the lake, we might get more drownings that are unrescued and so forth. They, they strike me as surrealistic examples, which is really part of the point. But at least to see that you should always be checking which one do you think is more serious, the moral hazard or the chilling effect. Neither one uh, is good. Uh, local law in Illinois does reflect this thinking a little bit. Bike helmets are really one of the best examples I can think of. So there are some jurisdictions that require helmets and some jurisdictions that do not. Most do not require helmets. They recommend helmets. Chicago, obviously, does not require helmets. How do I know that? I was kind of hoping somebody would give out divvies. Because right, divvies are like a prime example of we're offering thousands of bikes out there knowing that very, very few people have helmets that they carry around in case they're going to jump on a divvy. There is a move afoot in London as well as Chicago to try to come up with these super cardboard kind of helmets. It's a very interesting technology uh, that they might sell in a vending machine or a kiosk, but it hasn't worked anywhere. They've tried it in London. Cardboard in the sense of the sort of styrofoam that won't last forever. If it rains, you'll lose it once. But we don't have that and we don't require that. Helmets are very interesting because if you have a law that requires helmets, what jurisdictions have found is that you get a dramatic reduction in bike riding. So if what you care about is overall health, I mean, that's what, presumably that's the goal, life, life well lived, or something like that. Uh, well, then maybe helmets are a bad idea, right? There's a surprise chilling effect. There's a fine for not wearing a helmet, then a lot of people won't ride a bike, and that makes them less healthy, and they live less long, or whatever the point is, and the jurisdiction is not worse. Okay. What else is bad about carrots? Carrots, I think, um, probably are worse for fraud opportunities. If the government pays for them, even aside from the fact that the government's got to raise the money through some tax system, when the government says, well, you know, we'll give you money if you do a good job building a bridge, or we'll give you money if you pay your taxes on time, we'll randomly pick 100 people and give them money, you're really setting up a lot of fraud. The politicians, the people who run the system, can engineer it so that their cousins get the prizes. I mean, once you create a pool of money, it's very easy for the government to use it fraudulently. Now, if you're good at this, if you're very post-theorem about it, or if you, you know, vote for Gary Johnson or something, your, your immediate reaction might be, wait, that's true for sticks as well. Because if we have a rule that if you don't pay your taxes on time, you get a penalty, then a corrupt government could still go to somebody and say, oh, I see you didn't pay your taxes on time. And you'd say, well, I did pay on time. I'd say, no, you didn't. Give me $1,000 or you go to jail. You know, a really corrupt government can threaten people with sticks. In order, but it's much harder. The government has proof problems. If the laws are reasonable, you can keep the law in a way that's demonstrable. I think it's pretty clear. I don't see people arguing with that. Uh, I have one person snickered. I think most people will agree that when the government has a pool of money and it can give it as a reward, that creates more uh, fraud. Oh, another problem, as we build up to real cases, what about the private sector? Well, the private sector is really, it's at a little bit of disadvantage here because it doesn't have the same sticks. I mean, I can pay you to do something and then by contract fine you if you don't do a good job, but it's very hard randomly to go to people and say, you know, if you don't do this thing I want you to do, you'll owe me money. It would have to be like some tort violation or something. And that's not so easy to set up for most of the things uh, that we want. And very, very high administrative costs for an individual. Oh, if you cross across my front lawn, 
I will sue you in tort, and you'll owe me, you know, $300. And you'll think to yourself, really? First of all, you're going to have to stay home from work all day to catch me going across your front lawn. And second of all, so say you set up a video camera and you catch me. You know, then what? You're going to really sue me and go to court? You're not going to be able to show $300 of damage. You'll be able to show eight cents of damage. So you're not, I know that you know that I'm not going to go to court to sue you for some trivial wrong. You know, it's just really, probably if I really care about my lawn, I'll build a fence or something. You know, I'll spend money on something that's not a stick to you and not a carrot to you, and it makes me worse off because it's really quite expensive and all that. So private people really have this disadvantage in that they don't have sticks. I mean, it's one reason why the government likes its sticks uh, so much. You know, even when they do, like employers, I think my employer, meaning the law school, uh, I don't think they have any sticks against me. I, I didn't think about this in advance, so let's just think about it together. I can think of one example. So first of all, if I do a bad job, they can hint that I won't get a salary raise. Uh, they can hint that I'll be teaching at unpopular hours. I mean, it's hard to know. They can hint that at the CBI there'll be no lunches left. I mean, there are small sticks they can use to try to influence my behavior. But it's very rare to have an employer say, oh, and uh, if you do something wrong, we will then retrieve from your salary, you know, $5,000. And that was, a, that was very noticeable in this recent Berkeley Law Dean settlement. They had to give up a piece of salary. It's a very, very unusual settlement. And you might try to think about why that is. A part of the problem is that employers don't want to be in this position where they have to take away money from you and then defend in court that they accurately measured. It looks like it's self-serving. Oh, I'm going to find some violation by my employee in order to grab back money, and people might object and say you didn't measure it correctly. Whereas somehow if I give out carrots, it feels like there's no endowment effect. Oh, wow, I got a bonus at the end of the year. It feels much harder to sue and say, I deserve the bonus and I didn't get it. So employers seem a little odd about this. By the way, I, I can't help but say, the only example I know of in which law school, not ours, uses sticks to encourage employee behavior, is that in some schools, if you don't uh, grade your exams on time, then uh, you don't get your salary. So paychecks are withheld until salary, until grades come in. And in some schools, like for every day that the grades were late, the instructor loses a certain... Did anybody go to a college right now? Oh, how exciting. Where was that? Ohio State. So that's, that's good, meaning uh, a big school where it's kind of hard to monitor people, a general rule. The rule is, okay, every day your exams are late, you have a fine. You don't know how much a fine is. That would be exciting. So it, it is done. It's the only example I can think of. It's a kind of interesting example. Some of it just feels crazy. Like the same professor could just give everybody a C or everybody an A or show up to class 20 minutes late, unprepared. You know, you know what the penalty for that is? Like tenure. Like nothing happens to you. <laughs> I mean, nothing happens to you if you do those things. But there they can find one thing that's measurable. Oh, the exam should be in on January 8th. Finally, there's a measurable thing, and there might be like a stick for uh, violating. So I have nothing against it. There's no obvious chilling effect. I mean, everything about it seems good. It seems like a good use of sticks. But it's noticeable in how it varies. Right, here's another moral hazard thing. I, I'll, I'll make a claim. I think moral hazards are easily overcome, meaning carrots are more attractive the more information you have about the other person. So let's think about the way I was brought up and the way you were brought up. So in my generation, 
uh, parents would have thought it was absurd uh, to use a carrot. Now, there, there were some examples, but generally speaking, I don't know, I, I, when you read these novels, I, know, I realize you think they're like graphic novels with spoof in them. But they really happen, like if the teacher would, you know, send a note home because you hadn't done the homework or something, like your parents would hit you. Like, it's not, it's not a metaphor. That's like, they would hit you. <laughs> so they would apply the stick, uh, as we said. And, uh, you know, my, my father hit us with belts, you know, fairly regularly. And we were not the only ones. Like, there's nothing to feel sorry for. In my generation, lots of, you know, people thought you were coddled if you uh, did get hit with a belt. Like, that was very common. I think I'm at the end of that period, if you want to count years. That's much more unusual uh, today. And in fact, today, you know, parents can scarcely believe it. Like, I really can't even conceive of hitting my children. It's become such a social no-no. Like, that itself is a stick. In fact, a clever kid would make believe I had hit him. You know, in order to get something, I'm going to tell people you hit me. Whoa, no! Anything but that. It would, like, ruin my whole social standing. And if, if I said he made it up, people would just say, oh, come on, what kid would make that up, you know? <laughs> oh, every kid, if they realized realize how powerful it was. So it's interesting how, but carrots are very, very popular, right? Parents, oh, we'll, I, I did this, we will go to Disney World for the first and only time when both of you know your multiplication tables for one kid who was up to... 15 by 15, for the other kid up to 41 by 41. They didn't really want to go to Disney World. <laughs> Eventually we had to go. I mean, you can, you know, but you can give a carrot. Or, you know, it's very common to say, if you do that, I'll give you money, or that, I'll redecorate your room. I mean, parents are inventing new carrots all the time, just like employers are. Ooh, you'll get employee of the club, we'll give you a parking space for the month, we'll raise your salary, we'll give you a bonus. I mean, well, why, why are carrots so popular there? And I think part of it is that you know your audience, you know your kid well enough that you know to monitor against the moral hazard. So you might have one kid and say, if you get an A, if you really study hard for that quiz, for that meaningless, ridiculous quiz that you're being forced to take by your sixth grade teacher, but if you get a 95 to 100 on it, I'll give you $50. The kid, all of a sudden, you know, really studies, they want to buy some video game or something, they're really excited, they're really studying hard. Then you have the other kid, you know, like a goody-goody kid who gets 100 and everything, and the kid comes home with a bad grade thinking, oh, now you'll give me $50. No, you understand, oh, that kid has now moral hazarded you, so to speak. And in fact, a good parent would say to the second kid in advance, by the way, don't even think about what you're thinking right now, because I know you, and I just want you to know that if you start getting bad grades, there'll be hell to pay. You know, most kids at that age are, oh, hell to pay, oh. You know, and they don't yet realize that they can just say, I like hell. Or, you know, <laughs> it doesn't, you know, when it occurs to them, they're kind of out of the house already. So, I mean, that's, I think that's generally true in the society, that the moral, the carrots are very, very common there for the very interesting reason that the parent can control the moral hazard, or even the employer, by knowing the kid well, predicting in advance, and all that sort of thing. All right, I think we're now close to where we actually can have some insight about how the world works. Uh, maybe we need one half more thing there. Uh, let me, so I'll start with a few claims. How about this claim? 
you know, there's this whole move afoot about maybe we should have guaranteed income. Like maybe uh, everybody, maybe the way that we should get rid of a lot of subsidies and taxes, get rid of a lot of small carrots. Like, no, you don't get welfare payments. No, we don't do government loans for colleges. No, we don't. You get rid of a lot, a lot of subsidy programs in return for one big subsidy program. It could be every American starting at age 18 gets $25,000 a year. That's a lot of money, by the way, if you add up all these people times $25,000. But it's not that much money. You could do something like everybody gets $25,000 a year unless they already make you know, some sliding scale amount of money. But the more important thing is to say, by the way, that might not be so much money because we're no longer going to have food stamps, we're no longer going to have this. We want you to be an independent person, you should make your own decision, and instead we're giving you money up front. It's a very popular idea in the literature, there are Nobel Prizes in it, and there are politicians who have proposed it, not to mention law firms. But think about an extra advantage of giving people a lot of money, which is if you give them money, then suddenly you're in a position to use sticks because now they have money and now they're more sensitive to fines. Right? It's sort of like you're creating many, many more people who won't be judgment-proof. And now littering is, you know, right now if you stop someone who litters who's unemployed and doesn't have any money and they have the average amount of savings in the country, i.e. like negative $70, and they say, oh, you litter, give me $200. They'll say, you know, I don't have $200. And if you dock me $200, I mean, that's okay, but then my kids are going to starve, and you'll have to feed them. You know, I don't really have much. But on the other hand, if everybody who stopped had a $25,000 account that renewed every January 1st, it might be that the government could play with incentives more than it plays with. You notice that in the private sector, that's built in. Right? Like, if you go to a doctor, you can think of it this way, that the doctor's compensation for surgery, whatever the doctor does to you, is a carrot. I mean, you, the doctor doesn't operate on you without getting money. So you give the doctor money, and then the doctor is subject to sticks. If there's malpractice, the doctor owes you money. That's really the way I'm thinking about this. If everybody were paid, imagine that we're really all getting paid for being responsible citizens, then it would be more like a private market where we get money, and now if we do something wrong, they have options other than throwing us in jail, which is super expensive for the government and the rest of us. But instead, there'd be room to take uh, money from. A lot of these rules are very hard because of civil service protection. Now I'm getting ready for where I want to go with this, which is, what does this tell us about outsourcing? It's really where my semi-punchline is. So there's a big dispute in our society, really domain after domain, like the things the government does, then the government does them poorly, and then we think, oh, we should outsource that. Government delivers mail. It's ridiculous. Can you believe how much money? We should just get rid of the post office and just rely on messenger services and email and FedExpress. I mean, it's almost hard to imagine anybody who doesn't work for the post office who thinks that would be a bad idea. Like, it's super expensive and super inefficient. And then there are other areas where it's the other way around. The private sector does such a bad job that almost everybody thinks, well, the private sector, left to its own devices, has polluted the rivers, like, unbelievable, like, it's time for the government to come and say, okay, okay, we've tried the private market, including tort suits. It's not working very well. We're going to, I don't know what the opposite is, I guess we're going to insource it. We'll make it part of the government, we'll have an EPA, they'll go around and measure the river near your factory, they'll charge you fines. They could give rewards if they want, but in this case, they give mostly sticks, and so forth. Well, that's what I'm really interested in focusing on. Like, carrots and sticks, 
How does it tell us how to think a little bit differently about what the government does and ought to outsource to the private sector? And how does it make us think what it is that the private sector does that would be better off insourcing to the government? And are they doing it the same way or not? And I think what I've figured out, the more I think about this, is usually, I mean, I make this mistake. Usually when I see the government do something and I want to complain about it, I say, oh, the government should really learn from the private market. Look how the private market does this. You see, the government should probably be doing it the same way. When people are in competition and they figure out how to do it right, the government should copy it. But I think what I've figured out from thinking about this talk is that that's probably wrong. Probably the other way around. That usually when things are not working in one of these sectors, then it's because of their constraints on their mix of carrots and sticks. And if we move it to the other sector, probably the very reason to do it is to allow a different mixture of carrots and sticks. So let me try a few examples uh, on you. Uh, one more controversial than the next, but, but that's okay. So let's try prisons, since that's a big outsource, insource topic. So governments run, governments run most of the prisons. There was an era when the government ran all the prisons. In that era, let's say 25 years ago, the politically correct thing was to think that the government was terrible at running prisons, and it was progressives that wanted prisons outsourced. I know this is really hard for you to believe at your age, but trust me. Uh, because you in law school, you go visit prisons, and they are horrible. I mean, prisons are generally really, really horrible places. So you go to a prison, and people looked under incredible stress, and they were unhealthy, and they weren't living long, and there was violence, and there was guard on prisoner violence, and prisoner on guard violence, and there were riots in prisons. I mean, prisons are really, not every prison, obviously, but prisons can be really <coughs> bad places. And they were super corrupt. There'd be a lot of prisons where we'd be spending, you know, $52,000 a year on each prisoner, and they barely had enough money to feed them spam. And then the government would go in, the government on the government would go in and investigate it. Oh, they find corruption and bodies buried in the backyard, and the warden's cousin was supplying chairs to the prison at $1,000 a chair. It's just one after the other after the other. And so in that era, progressive said, you know, what we really got to do here is outsource. We have to create some competition. Because this government sector with its civil service, it's really kind of an anti-union thing, almost. Although they weren't all unionized. It's like, whatever it is they're doing, it's not working very well. We're not catching the bad wardens and guards. And when we catch them, we administer sticks. And the sticks really aren't very serious. And it's not working very well. OK, so the early private prisons, the whole idea was your profit motive will be like a carrot. If you can run that prison and do it at 30000 rather than $52,000 a year, You'll get, say, $10,000 of prisoner profit. In other words, we'll make $10,000, you'll make $10,000. There's $20,000 to gain. And in the very beginning, actually, there was a lot of successes. The early studies of the few private prisons, as you might expect, were pretty good because people could look at what the prisons were doing and then do basically the same thing without the corruption. And there was a lot of money to be had without the corruption. But what you really want to see there is you want to see a different mix. So, for example, maybe a better thing to do would have been to say to the private prisons, we're only going to give you, you know, $15,000 a year per prisoner, but then we're going to do spot checks. And then whenever we check and we find that you're rehabilitating people well, or doing this well, or doing that well, or serving good food, or we'll have an independent commission measure it, whatever we do, we'll pay you more and more and more per prisoner, the better the job you do. In other words, we'll try to administer carrots according to how good a job uh, you do. 
Uh, no government has tried. I think that's a mistake in the planning of outsourcing. Again, because the key here is to remember, it's not take what the government does badly, throw it into the private sector and say, oh, well, you surely do it better. Probably they'll just recreate the same problems the government has. Because, my point is, they're using a mix of carrots and sticks that are conventional up to that point and that aren't working very well. In this case, a basic carrot followed by a lot of sticks from misbehavior. And it's just not working. They'll have the same cover-up problems and agency problems and corruption problems and so forth. When they saw public prisons weren't working, they probably should have privatized and tried more of a carrot-like uh, system. You know, maybe schools are the, uh, the prime example on everybody's mind. So if we have charter schools and we get them started, probably a real mistake is to have the charter schools be just like the public schools. The charters are often public, I understand that. But they're often allowed to do different teacher contracts and so forth. Probably it's a mistake to have the charter schools be just like the foregoing public schools, which was, oh, these are more motivated principals, or more TFA people, or better location, or parents do choose or don't choose. Those are really minor things compared to what happens. And in fact, charter schools are a lot like public schools. If the charter school fails, then it closes down. If the public school fails, through no child left behind, or mayors and cities, then those public schools are closed. And they're actually very, very similar systems. A real mistake. A much better rule would be to try to come up with some baseline with rewards and, and, uh, and so forth. Now, it's very hard in the case of public schools, and with this I'll wind down, leaving for questions and answers. It's very hard to change that so far. That's why prisons are a better example. Because in the case of schools, the charter school movements that we have that have really worked well, and I know there are people here who have taught them, so I'm trying to be careful with my facts even more careful than usual with my facts. <laughs> the problem is that um, these schools are also doing well because they're getting a lot of private money. So they've become the real darling of people who care. I mean, I give money to charter schools. Maybe some of you do too. Like, you want some schools to really succeed. So they're not just getting public money. They're also getting donations. The donations are tax deductible under our Internal Revenue Code rules. And so if you make these schools true for-profit schools, there are some that are for-profit. But if most of them were for-profit, they were super-carrot systems, probably people wouldn't donate money to them. Like, it's not attractive to donate money to Coca-Cola to sell better soda and run a school. Like, I don't think that would attract money. It's much better if a person shows up and they look broke and ragged and graduate student-y and so forth. And then they say, oh, I can really run a better school. Give me $100,000. This will be a school that will empower girls. We have a few of these in Chicago. That seems to really open people's wallets. Wow! Empowering girls. That's my thing. And then they give money to that. And then those schools, some of those schools do very, very well. Now, again, critics would say, yeah, of course they did well. They ended up spending, you know, twice as much money per student. But a lot of those schools do well before all that and even without the extra money. But the extra money doesn't hurt. And one problem with going to a pure carrot substitute system is that with the profit motive, they might not attract private money. So I'm not sure that's the best place. But the one thing I am sure of is that if we experiment with outsourcing education or insourcing some education, it must be with an idea that we can come up with a different characteristic system that doesn't work in one sector, maybe because of civil service or something else, but will work better in the other systems. In the other system. So that's basically my bottom line. It is keep your view on the carrots and sticks and 
you'll go a long way. You know, I'll give one last example. If you think a tort system isn't working for something, then okay, you might want to switch to a, another system, but it shouldn't be to another tort system. Then go try criminal law, or go try subsidies, or think that what, it's, what is at root in these systems is the mix of characters. So let's stop there and uh, try to say more with uh, questions and answers. My experience with this is that in the beginning, People are very shy about asking a question. And then when the time runs out, then people are like annoyed that I didn't get to them. So if you have a question, I would try to ask it early and loud. And you have the first hand up. The only reason I didn't want to call on you is that people have trouble hearing you in front. So you could face them if you want. And I'm going to repeat the questions for the podcast. Right, so the question is not an outsourcing, insourcing, but within government. Say there's something we're pretty sure government should do, like policing, and we think it's broken. So why don't we use more carrots and sticks, and what can we learn about that, or what do I think of that, or is that, is that a fair version of the question? I was going to do an unfair version, but it seemed a little early. Okay, so let's try, uh, let's try two examples. That's a great question. So let's try two examples to see how it would work. I mean, one possibility is, let's first go to excessive uh, police intrusion, so searches. Uh, now I'm going to sound like a real Chicago professor who, you may have noticed by now, they always begin answers with, well, you know, I once wrote a paper about that. And then, you know, you, you roll your eyes, but they might actually have something to say. Well, a colleague uh, at another law school, Professor Stunts and I, once wrote a paper about searches. And the idea would be, well, maybe we should have much more relaxed rules about the police searching your car and your house. But, same plan for tax audits. But we should pay you every time we search. And then, think of it as an intentional trespass. Yep, we come to your house, we search, but we, you know, on the flimsiest of warrants, but we give you 50 bucks. And of course we repair any broken locks or windows or things like that. If it turns out, you know, that we find, you know, atom bombs in your house, then you don't get the 50 bucks and we just put you in jail and then we sell the atom bombs on the corrupt side market or whatever it is we're supposed to do with the thing. But if we search the house and, oh, nope, we didn't find anything, then we say we're sorry and we give you the $50 for your time. This has been proposed for tax audits. Very interesting suggestion. Notice uh, you got to be, as always, you got to be very careful with the 50 bucks. If it's a little bit too generous, you'll have people who wait for a police car. I can't even believe we did this as kids, but we did do this as kids. You'd wait for police cars to come around the corner and then start running away like you'd done something wrong to see if they would chase you. <laughs> I know this sounds really hard to believe, but I, I was not then who I am now. And, and you know, people essentially might do that. Run into the house, police come, say, well, aha, 50 bucks, you know. So you've got to make, sometimes in the literature this is called skeleton carrots. You've got to make the carrots such that you don't have a moral hazard and stuff. But presumably, it could be done. You know, the same for stop and frisk. You might even think of it as a public choice thing. You'd get people practically happy to be searched. Go ahead, search me, 20 bucks. You know, it, it might change the whole budget thing. Now, to make it work, and now the same with your Rappaport idea, to make these things work, 
You've got to have an anti-insurance rule. You can't have a rule where whenever the police owe money, the police union pays for it, or the city pays for it. That's part of the problem with the incentives we have now, is that we're letting uh, someone else bear the carrots, and in fact, I'm sorry, bear the sticks. And that's a real problem, because there aren't really sticks on the police. We're stuck with our civil service that all we can really do is bring them up in a hearing, or fire them, and fire them, or promote them. It's not a very good set of sticks and carrots to have. So you'd need a rule that when the police owed money or suffered under 1983 suits, the police officers themselves have to pay the money. This is not so easy to do, because what stops private people from entering into mutual insurance agreements and so forth? But I think that that's uh, the problem. So I like those experiments, but they first require getting rid of the insurance factor. Let me just say, because people like saying insurance to too many things, I'm not saying that insurance is always has to get rid of. For example, let's say, uh, say I smoke in bed and I start a fire. I, I don't smoke. But let's say I smoke in bed and I start a fire. My homeowner's insurance covers that. It seems shocking to those of us who aren't smokers or aren't negligent. But, you know, smoking in bed is really dangerous. People fall asleep and smoke. You know, in the old days, this was a big cause of house fires when there was much wider smoking. And in, in Japan, that's still the single biggest cause. So you might say, well, why does the insurance company cover that? We should have a law, no insurance, and then people would be much more careful about smoking in bed. But of course, the Chicago answer is, well, the insurance company isn't stupid, and the insurance company raises your premiums or makes you put in smoke alarms. That is, it takes steps. Maybe it's even better than the government at enforcing the carrots and sticks. So I'm not against insurance. Insurance can sometimes even improve the incentive system. The problem in this police case is that this is not really an insurance system. It's just a reimbursement system, and the patrolman's union doesn't get rid of police offices or raise their dues. There's no price sensitivity at all, and that's what's wrong with this kind of insurance. Is that a hand? Oh, don't be shy. Yeah, I'm just curious how you deal with sort of the problems of sort of like creaming in like charters or prison populations and sort of advantages that they may derive from a sort of two parallel system, one of which has to take everyone and the other doesn't. And then sort of private, sort of all private, would there be a market then for students and prisoners? Because it's potentially right. a scenario where someone could be sort of not worth taking otherwise. So the, the question might not seem to be about carrots and sticks right away. It's about privatized, privatization in general. Right. That's it's a good question. Yeah, no, oh, I, it's a good question, and we can, I agree. We can tie it to carrots and sticks. It's just fine. So let me let's just let me just repeat the question a few different ways. The first way uh, was well, think about schools. Maybe the problem with schools is that charter schools might look good, but that might be in a jurisdiction where they're allowed to announce that they have a charter school, and then the parents who wake up at five in the morning to get in line get their kids into the school. So we have self-selection. Maybe it's the parents who already would monitor the kids' homework. And Homeschool them and do this or that, and maybe and you know, or maybe people with severely disabled kids are never going there because they can't get the kid up on time in the morning or whatever. So it might be the charter schools are not getting a fair share of the population, which is fine. It might be fine any more than I don't think the University of Chicago really hurts the University of Illinois just because we got you here. But it's it's fine if we cream the crop, but then we don't get government subsidies for it. Is the difference? The claim is. Maybe we shouldn't expect any scaling up of these privatization movements because maybe the ones that open are the ones that are taking the easiest to serve uh, population. 
I'll give you another example of it in a minute. By the way, I find it hard to believe about prisons. Prisons are the other way around. Because the government is choosing which prisons to auction off. So it's the other way around there. The governments go to the prisons that are the hardest to manage and the most repeatedly corrupt with employees that they can't manage. And then they say, okay, we've got Alcatraz over here. It's costing us $100,000 a year, and all that's happening is people killing each other and escaping. Who wants to run it for $62,000 a year? Well, if people bid to run Alcatraz, the government now is selling off. Give me a second. The government is selling off the hardest to run prison there. So if we find out that private prisons are only as good as public prisons, if you're complaining about the schools, you should be complimenting the prisons. Wow, that's really impressive. If the private, it's going to take me a minute. Just wait. Then the private prisons are going to be as good as. So you've got to be careful both ways. By the way, in another sector, I can't imagine that we object. For example, after FedEx starts delivering overnight packages that, you know, six bucks a shot and gets there the next morning, I, I think it would be a little strange, even you, I think, would not raise your hand and say, ah, I'm not impressed with FedEx, because all they did was take the cream off the crop. They charged six dollars, so rich people send their packages. They didn't get any of the tough, the tough things to deliver. I don't think, gee, the government had a hundred years with the Pony Express on forward to figure out a way to send the easy things overnight for six dollars and make a lot of money, and they didn't. So again, I think even if some of these private things are taking the cream, we're often impressed. Having said all that, I quite agree with you about the base. If our job is to mix the carrots and sticks, when we auction off the charter schools, we just need to make sure that it's a fair share. We need to say, and it should be a certain percentage of people who are in poverty and a certain percentage disabled. And certain, you know, we should try to make the comparison fair, or at least outsource what we think we most need uh, to outsource. I have nothing against that. You were going to say. Yeah, I know, that's why I brought it up. But I'm saying that's a good example where using your argument, it makes the outsourcing more attractive. Do you agree with that? Sorry, what? Just saying yes. Oh, okay. Well, then, yeah. With FedEx, sort of, I mean, you could say they're sort of, uh, because the USPS is sort of inherently controlled by political forces, that it's sort of not proportionate to sort of the market of consumers, but a sort of, you know, they all choose senators, etc., and they have to deliver to all these sort of rural areas. That yeah, yeah, but that, that's the whole idea of privatizing. It's to try to get out of whatever the lock-in yeah, incentive. we've already accepted that everyone should have mail delivery. What would we do then? That seems to be the Well, okay, first of all, the government could auction that off. We auction off the following routes, but you have okay. to promise to deliver six times a week. Da, da, da. Nothing wrong with that. You can set whatever constraints you want. But they also insist on rate control, so... Oh, uh, they can auction that off, too. At 43 cents a first-class letter, how much would it take for you to deliver? I mean, we can, you can set whatever constraints you want and still offer it to the private sector. Go ahead. Do you have any more to throw at me? Whatever you throw, we can imitate. No, I'm not saying it can't be auctioned. Right. I'm just not sure that anyone would buy it, essentially. Uh -huh. Okay. So, like, what do you do with goods that... Yeah, well, we can try. Buy, like, we, you know, we can try. 47 cents. That's right. But, but we can try. By the way, uh, FedEx is, is a good example for me because the government can imitate FedEx. It can see how FedEx does it and then say, we too will deliver packages overnight at this weight, at this price, and all that. And that's what they do, and they make much, much less money. They lose money compared to FedEx. So the company can go uh, uh, There was a hand there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so it, it seems to me that in any like carrot and uh, 
stick system, eventually society or you know business interests or whatever will adjust to it and find ways to, I don't want to say corrupt it, but maybe take advantage of it. So could you argue that maybe a key element of it is, is like inconstancy, like maybe changing it around? That's an interesting question. I'll repeat it for the audio. The question is, uh, people are inherently corrupt, making game systems as fast as we can design them. And so maybe the real lesson is that it's nice to have both carrots and sticks that are corrupt substitutes, but we should always be surprised at people. So that they can't keep their corrupt adjustments. A little bit like, or their tax evasion, if you will. A little bit like uh, the earlier example of McDonald's, that you wouldn't want to promise people whenever you drive safely down Main Street with a seatbelt, we give you $5. That would be crazy. You've got to keep changing it. And, you know, when she comes to class late, she shouldn't know if it's going to be a characteristic. And that will keep her a little off balance and keep her from gaming the system and, and so forth. So, yes, of course, I, I agree. I mean, that is a, it's a long fight. I mean, people like me who like incentives uh, always are arguing that government is better with a kind of random element in it. So, for example, I'm a big fan, if not inventor, of retroactive taxation. Like, we should surprise you. Oh, you know that money you made in 2015? Sorry, here are the new rates. And the response was, are you kidding? Like, I didn't have any chance to adjust. And our answer is, exactly. We don't want you to adjust. We don't want you to use tax avoidance <coughs> mechanisms. You should just work and try to make as much money as you can or enjoy leisure or whatever it is. And then after the fact, we'll set the rates. I mean, this is really startling to most people. Uh, but I see you would be the only person around who might vote for it, along with me. That is, there is a lot to be gained. Again, what you're fighting is that most people trust government even less than you do, and they don't want the government to be equipped with surprises, and they think they're the only ones gaming the system, uh, and, and so forth. And the same is true for private uh, sector things. That is, if you could trust the law school, we might say, and the way you do, we might say, you know, you should come here as a first-year student. And by the way, we're not telling you what the law school will look like next year. Prices might go up. We might get rid of the whole corporate curriculum. You know, a lot of things we might do that really surprise you. We might give degrees in art history instead of law. But come here, and the surprise will be good for you, because you won't spend your time just studying for the exam or something like that. You know, that might be great, but the market is not interested in that, right? The market might say, oh, you have a lot of other reasons why you might switch your school. You've got to more or less keep to your brand with small changes because there's too much room for you to game. So I understand why people wouldn't like too much gaming, but I quite agree. An element of surprise is a really good thing in law, as in foreign policy, and, and you know, can go a little too far. But it must be that if you believe in incentives, you don't think it's so good to know every rule in advance. Uh -huh. So by the carrot and stick system, you're talking about And then what do you get for having a five-star school? What's the reward? Like, what, what would the owner of the school get? Like more students will come. Like but why would they want more students if they're not getting paid for? They, they get the tuition. 
Oh, you are going to give them money. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were trying to avoid money. I see. Okay, now I understand the question. So the question was, uh, well, I've tried, in most of my examples, but not all of them, because I use criminal law a little bit, I've tried to develop a system where it's always money, and you keep giving people bigger annual income. But couldn't you get a lot of this without money? For example, maybe the government could do more rankings, or other things to try to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. Yeah, I, I quite agree. I mean, if you don't have some strong incentive. You know, you could also think of it the other way. Imagine we want to get rid of our prisons. Maybe we could use money more. That might be better for people. But it's always good to try to think, well, what would happen if you didn't have one of these carrots and, uh, and one of these sticks? I mean, it's a little bit more uh, complicated than you're letting on. Notice the corruption. You know, it might really pay for me to bribe somebody to give me five stars. Right? So I'm surprised that you want the government to do the ranking. I thought it was going to be uh, crowdsourced or something. Even third party is corruptible. I mean, that's an, an advantage of crowdsourcing, you know, inaccurate as it might be, is it's much, much harder to corrupt. But I want to, not, not just to be funny, I want to draw your attention to how much we use carrots and sticks that do not involve money. So, uh, you know, think about my job. You know, um, it's really amazing how almost irrelevant money is. I mean, that is, all these people need to get paid a decent amount, or they'll jump to some other fancy law school. <coughs> but mostly what's done is non-money. It's free. You give them titles. You call a professor. You give them a chair. You give them a research thing. You give them prizes. I mean, it's really amazing how much hard work you can get out of people by being like the Wizard of Oz, just giving out things that really cost you nothing, as long as the people believe, the system has to believe that you're not corrupt, that you actually are, you know, giving the person the chair who more or less deserves the chair. It has to be a reward that in the eyes of peers or the rest of the world really will look valuable. If you gave out Nobel Prizes randomly, you know, it wouldn't be worth very much. But the Nobel Prize would be just as good as it is if it paid nothing rather than all the money it is. So I think we have a lot of that, more in some jobs than the other, and I fear you'll see this when you work for a judge or a law firm or something like that, that most of what they're giving out is, they, they've figured you out, and most of what they're giving out are hats on the back or small hints of disapproval. And, you know, think about how the Socratic method works. We don't give people $5 for a good answer. We just say something a little less mean than we would otherwise say. <laughs> and they go home thinking, wow, it's like the best day of my life. Uh, we have time for one more uh, question. And then your job is to go to class. Please? Yeah. So you were talking about carrots and sticks in education. And there's been a lot of experimentation in that area at the national level and at local levels. So my question is whether you have a proposal for what we base the carrots and sticks on. Because it seems like standardized testing isn't the answer. OK, well, that's so topic, but let's try to talk about it. Everybody heard the question, I'll repeat it anyway, which is something like, well, funny you should mention education, because that's something where we have had a lot of experimentation, and the results are super mixed. I mean, a hundred social scientists, a hundred opinions on whether some systems work better than others, and whether big classes, small classes, you know, it's very, very hard. And what you really seem to want is an output 
if the output measure is, are the parents and the students happy, then a lot of schools that you and I would probably think are really terrible schools seem to do very well. A lot of people seem to love their schools where everybody's getting you know, negative scores on these ACT kind of tests, way below the median. And so we're a little hesitant to say, well, if parents are happy, then it's a good school. So that leads us to go to standardized tests or kids getting into college or whatever our measure or whatever level. And then again, as we know, first of all, some of the tests can be corrupt, and then some of it is teaching to the test. And some of it just is that even if you reward people really big time for doing what for their kids, students doing well on the tests, when you and I read tests, we're a little nervous, like, boy, you know, I'm not really sure that we're getting better citizens by doing those things. It's a very, very hard question. I, I do have a better answer, I think, than you're expecting. But I'll I'll do it away from schools for a minute. Because schools are too long a topic for me to give a response. But let me let me try this on you, which is uh, imitation. So let's try healthcare. I think healthcare is even harder. But I'm going to give the same answer for schools. Okay. So think about healthcare. It's the same thing. Like, wow. Healthcare is really, it's like schools, which is, if someone says to you, you know, what does the United States do well? We would name a few things that we do well that are very expensive. Like, our universities. They're, you know, everybody wants to come here, but they are very expensive. You know, maybe you get what you pay for. Da, 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 da. But there are things we do very well that are cheap. Okay, we should be very proud of those. Then there are things relevant to today that we do very badly that are super expensive. Those are the things that should get us most nervous, like schools in general. Wow, we spend a fortune per student, and then we finish like in 37th place on these international exams, whatever you think of the exams, I'd rather finish you know, first than 37th. Healthcare is another one like that. You know, we're kind of living longer than before. Maybe you're better off if you're a white female in an urban area than other people. But basically, everybody's living, you know, more or less longer than 20 years ago. But wow, there are these countries around the world that are much poorer than we are, that are spending, you know, a third of what we are per capita, and they're living just as long, if not longer. This is, like, really shocking. It's like schools. So there are these two areas, schools and healthcare, where it feels like something is super wrong. In those areas, yeah, we could try in-source, outsource, mixing, and all that, and that's what people talk about. But it feels like there's another way to do it, which is if the measurement is the problem, maybe we should just do imitation. So I'll try a bizarre one on you, because I'm going to run out of time. Which is, you know, let's look around the world for a system that has really good health care at low cost, much lower cost than we do. Uh, I study this a lot, maybe you do too. I mean, I used to say the Netherlands. But now, a more interesting example is Italy. So Italy, for all that we, I'm, I'm sorry if there are any Italian LLMs here. I'll just speak fast so you won't understand. So, <laughs> we, we know that when we hear Italy, we're acculturated to like, oh, come on, they like change governments every three weeks, and oh, they're corrupt, and oh, they're the North again. We have all these stereotypes about Italy. But man, there are things that Italy does, like healthcare, where they spend less than half the amount of money we do per capita, and they live longer. And you know, you can find any group you want in Italy. They're the poorest people in the worst area, the most discriminated against, blah, blah, blah. You know, say what you want about them, they're living to be 88. You know, our inner city people would really envy them. So it does occur to me, like, why does a presidential candidate come along and say, I know how to fix health care, here's what we're going to do. We're going to imitate Italy. Whatever Italy covers, we'll cover. However Italy trains doctors, that's how we'll start training doctors. 
if they give money for this vaccine, we'll do it. If they say, no, that drug's not covered, then we won't cover it. We're going to just do exactly what they do. And every three years, we'll adjust, to use your point about mixing it up. You don't want to say, we're going to do what Italy does forever, because then pharma will go to Italy and screw up their political system. <laughs> I'm being serious. So you have to keep them off balance. We're always going to do what one of the three best systems in the world do, and we'll try to copy it as closely as we can. I think that might be the solution. That is, it might be that, notice what I'm doing in my own topic, that we need to imitate the carrots, sticks, and output measures that another system is doing on grounds that appears to be working much, much better than ours. And of course, we could start, we could do four states, we could do Italy, and ten states could stay the way we are, and fifteen could do the Netherlands. I mean, there are a lot of ways to mix this up. But I think the right answer to schools is something like that. Thank you so much for coming. And This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.